Psalms chapter 1. And let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are the God who saves. And so we would sing and, and we would now continue in worship to study your word to the praise of your glory, to the praise of your mercy and grace. Father, we pray that you would incline our hearts to you, O God, that you would open our eyes that we may see you, O God, that because of who you are and what you've done, Lord, that you would teach us your ways, that we may know you and walk in your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry, I could not travel both, and be one traveler long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth, and took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as far that had been the passing there had worn them really about the same, and both that morning equally lay it in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I, took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. I remember high school English class reading this famous poem, The Road Not Taken, by Robert Frost. Two roads, and the choice you make makes all the difference. Maybe you're not the poetry type of person. That's okay. Maybe you're more into pop culture. This is the idea of, of Morpheus and the Matrix giving Neo a choice between the red, blue, red pill and the blue pill. Or this is Yoda in Empire Strikes Back telling Luke he has two choices he has to choose from. I'm not going to try to do a Yoda impression, but he, he would say, if you leave now, help them, you could. But you would destroy all for which they have fought and suffered. We're starting a new series this spring and into the summer on selections for the book of Psalms. And this morning, we're going to start with the very first chapter, Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 sets forth this very same choice for us. Psalm 1 was called the preface psalm by the great preacher Charles Hayden Spurgeon. Uh, also, if you had medieval manuscripts of the psalms in front of you, you would see that uh, in the medieval area, they, they saw Psalm 1 as the introduction to the whole psalm. They would often separate it and put it in red type and, and not even have a chapter number on it because it was set forth as this is what gets you in the mindset to study the psalms. Psalm 1 sets the tone for the whole rest of the book. When it asks the question, of the two paths before you, which will you choose? As we study the Psalms together this summer, this is what the Holy Spirit would have us keep in mind. This introductory image from Psalm 1, that how we sp respond to the revelation of God when we read the Psalm, that's going to make all the difference. Psalm 1 describes two ways, characterized by two paths, depicted by two portraits, resulting in two future prospects. And the question is, which of those two describe you? Which of those two describe us? The answer to that question makes all the difference in the world. So let's start by looking how this psalm sets forth two different paths. Look at verse 1. <coughs> verse 1, the psalmist says, Blessed is the man who does not walk, who, does, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, 
nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The psalmist starts with the word blessed. What does that mean? What kind of blessedness is this psalmist talking about? If you have a New Living Translation of the Bible, you see that this word's a plural word that translates, oh, the joys of those. This word also in, in, in Hebrew can mean happy. The Christian Standard Bible translates that this, oh, how happy is the one. But it's not just a feeling of happiness. It's a deep sense of well-being. It's a deep sense of rightness that comes from a right relationship with God. This is what it looks like to be in a right relationship with God, to experience God's gift of joy and rightness and blessedness in our life. That's what we want, right? This is what we would desire. Well, let's look at how the psalmist describes that blessedness. Blessed is the man who does not. Isn't that interesting? The psalms doesn't start by saying, blessed is the man who does these things. It starts by saying, blessed is the man who doesn't live this way. It's starting very from the beginning, saying there's two different paths. The path of blessedness is described by not walking down the path of verse 1. And look at this progression in verse 1. There's this poetry, this parallelism going forward, but there's a progression that's going on here. First, you're walking in the counsel of the wicked. You're heading the right way. You're heading down the path. Maybe, but you're, you're externally listening to their advice, this, this counsel that wicked people may be giving, but you're not stopping to give into it. You're not internalizing it. But look what happens. You go from walking, but then you're slowing down, and you're standing. You see, walking, then standing in the way of sinners. You stopped. You've started to participate in the sinful experience of your counselors. You're adopting their sinful habits. You're, you're adopting their attitudes. You're engaging in their sinful activities. And then you go from walking to standing to sitting. You become just like them. You're sitting in the seats right next to them. You become just like your counselors. You you've been changed on an internal heart level where you're thinking and feeling and responding with that same scoffful attitude as those sinful counselors. And what are you scoffing at? The psalmist doesn't say, but by implication, you're scoffing at the things of God. How would you find yourself all of a sudden scoffing and mocking the things of God and the truth of God and the people of God? It's because this, of this progression. The psalmist is describing that, that the opposite of blessedness is this gradual downhill descent of sin. My friends, huge life-changing sins don't just accidentally happen. They don't. There's a gradual progression from, from that external influence to the internal change of the heart that takes place. And, and the psalmist says it's going to start with your counselors. And the psalmist would ask you and ask me, who is your counsel? Who are the people that are influencing your life? Who are you listening to? Who are you in, your influencers? Who are the people you get your counsel from? Who are the people that you model your lives after? Maybe it's friends, it's peers, it's coworkers. Maybe it's certain things from media or culture or society. Why do you talk the way that you talk and wear the things that you wear and enjoy the things that you enjoy and prioritize the things that you prioritize and do the things that you do? I mean, we should all be able to answer that question, right? Who are the people or cultural influences that are our counselors? Now, I want to Note here that the psalmist is saying that we are not to wall ourselves off from the world. That's not what the psalm is saying. The psalm is saying, beware of this gradual descent where you are starting to internalize and adopt the attitudes of the world. 
right? It's not about our association, but it's about our hearts. It's about what we're delighting in, as we're going to see then in verse 2. It's cautioning of not of being around the world, but of adopting the attitudes and the lifestyles of those who aren't pursuing a relationship out of delight in Jesus Christ. So we want to engage. We've been talking about that as a church. We want to engage in, real, in friendships. We want to engage in real relationships with non-Christians. But there's a difference of having real friendships than adopting that same worldview and having a friendship so I can just be just like them. You see the difference? There's an important difference the psalmist is saying here. That really the psalmist is asking, is in your relationship, who's counseling who? Who is influencing who? Ultimately, in your relationships in this world, where is your heart's delight in those relationships? Is your heart's delight in the Lord, and that is why you're loving and reaching out to your friends, or is it that you're delighting because you want their approval. Your delight is in them. And in contrast to that path, look at verse 2. But, or instead, or but rather, his delight, this blessed man's delight, is in the law of the Lord, of Yahweh. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So the, 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 the path of God's blessing is not walking and standing and sitting in the sinful progression, of verse 1, but instead a walking, standing, and sitting in the delight of the Word of God. See, it's, it's contrasting two delights, delight in the world or delight in the law of God. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, now I want to I stop there for a second. I want you to think about that phrase, to delight in the law of the Lord. On the surface, that can seem like a strange statement. C.S. Lewis once wrote that this phrase is, quote, Utterly bewildering and mysterious, unquote. Why does he say that? He says that we would tend to say that we delight in God's mercies, in the mercies of the Lord. We would delight in the attributes of the Lord. But to delight in the law, that just doesn't seem like a concept that works right. That's the wrong verb, you would think, right? We, we respect the law of the Lord. We are glad that the law is good and just. We obey the law of the Lord, but delight? Is that the right verb? Is that really what should be there? How does delight work with the word law, right? Well, let's think about what we're saying here. In a similar context, if someone says that they delight or they love history, they, they love chemistry, they, they love poetry, what do they mean by that? They, they mean that they love, they, 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 they study and focus on that subject, not because they, they love the studying in itself, but they love all that's what's represented in that subject, all that, that what's represented in history, all that's what's represented in science or in poetry and in art. Well, in a similar way, when, when, when the psalmist is saying that he delights in the law of God, the end of it is not the law in itself. The, the, the Bible is never meant to be an end in itself. We do not worship the Bible, right? So what is it that we delight in? We delight in what the Bible points to. We, what we delight in what the Bible represents because the Bible, God's law, is a revelation of who God is. It's a revelation of God himself. That's why we delight in God's law 
Because in God's word, God has revealed himself. We have a God who speaks and has spoken and has revealed himself in his word. As C.S. Lewis would continue to write, quote, the order of the divine mind embodied in the divine law is beautiful, unquote. You see what he's saying? He's saying the law in itself is not what's beautiful. It's what, because of the law is, is picturing the beauty of God. We discover the beauty of God in his word. We delight in the law is because that's where we get to see God. Do, do you want a, a window into your own heart? to see what the attitudes of your heart are like? Do you want a, a, a thermometer to take the temperature of your own heart's desire for God? The psalmist would say, ask yourself, how much delight do you have in reading the Bible? That will tell you what sort of delight you have in the God who is revealed in the Bible. Do you delight in God? Then you would have the same delight as he's revealed himself in his law, in his word, in his scriptures, but the opposite would be true as well, right? When we don't delight in the word, when we don't delight in how God has revealed himself, really we're not finding God enough of a delight. Now, now what does it look like when one delights in God? Well, the psalmist goes on to say that the delight in the law of the Lord is this one who meditates on it day and night. Again, notice what he doesn't say. Notice what he doesn't say in verse 2. He does not say one who delights in the Lord is one who reads the law day and night. You notice that? In fact, have you ever noticed in the Bible, there are very few personal commands or personal examples of regular personal Bible reading. You ever notice that? It's hard to find. There's a couple, but they're very scant. There's examples and commands of congregationally doing this, like John Paul did for us this morning of congregationally hearing and reading the Bible, which is why Sunday morning is so important. But there's actually very few personal examples. Now we're going to see that reading is necessary for these other things, but reading is not the priority. Reading is what helps you get to what's going to help you delight in God. The focus is not reading. Reading is the tool that gets you to what happens in verse 2 that helps you delight. On his law, he, what's the verb? meditates. He meditates day and night. We see the same thing in Joshua 1.8, where Joshua says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall not read, meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then, then for then you, uh, you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. Very similar to Psalm 1. We see the same thing in Psalm 63, 6, Psalm 77, 12, Psalm 119, 15, Psalm 143, verse 5. The defining factor of our delight is not did you read your Bible today or did you hear a sermon today, but did you meditate on that? Did you actually think upon that? Did it just go through your, 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 your head like a water going through a pipe? Or did you absorb some of what's going on there? You see, the, 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 the idea of meditation is what's key. Now, meditation can have a lot of different meanings, especially in our world today. So I want to define what is the psalmist talking about here. Over and over in the Bible, when it talks about meditation, what is it talking about? What is biblical meditation? It's very different from the way that our world uses the term meditation. 
biblical meditation is not emptying your mind, right? There's this type of Eastern meditation where you're trying to empty your minds and try to get everything cleared out. That's not biblical meditation. Instead, biblical meditation, which we see in Psalm 1, is filling your minds. You're trying to fill your minds with thoughts of God and his word. Biblical meditation is not passivity. It's not being passive. It's being mentally active to think and engage in God's word. Biblical meditation is also not, which is very popular in New Age circles and others, of this type of visualization. Today people talk about this meditation of visualization that you can create or change your own reality as you envision that for yourself. That is not what the Bible is talking about when it says meditation. Instead, it's focusing on not what I would have as my reality, but what God has already revealed my reality to be in his word. As Philippians 4.8 says, that whatever is true, what God has revealed is true, let your mind dwell on these things. So we are so to meditate means we're focusing our minds and hearts on how do we understand God's word. As John Paul prayed so beautifully earlier, how do we understand God's word? How, how, do, we, how do we apply God's word? How do we do and live out God's word? That's biblical meditation. Now, that includes reading God's word. How can you think about God's word if you don't read God's word? So reading is involved, but reading is not the end of the practice. That we need to not just stop with reading and not just stop with hearing, but we need to think about that and say, how do I understand that and live that out? This is what James describes in James chapter 1. Let me read James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. James says, but be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intensely at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be, here's that word again, blessed in his doing. This is what the psalmist is talking about. James is picking up on Psalm 1. So just reading God's word, just hearing God's word is not enough to change us into this blessed person, this blessed path that Psalm 1 describes. James and the psalmist says we need to look into the the word like we look into the mirror when we're getting ready in the morning, right? That you don't just look in the mirror and, oh, looks bad. I forgot. I'm off off to church, right? You, You deal with something. Well, we try to, right? Um, but but you, 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 you kind of have to sometimes really look intensely and do something about it. I, I've shared before that I get a really weird single clear unicorn hair out of the middle of my forehead. I don't know what it, why it is, but I get this single clear unicorn horn, and it's happened in the past. It's very embarrassing where someone's like, oh, you got a stray hair there, and they like, try to pull it off, and it's attached. It, it's, it's, just, it's embarrassing for them. It's awkward. It's embarrassing for me. It's awkward. Just don't want that again, right? So I'm in the mirror in the morning for things like this, you know, on Sunday morning. I'm like, I'm looking at like every, because it's clear. You can't see it sometimes. I'm like, I'm looking in the mirror at like every angle. And up there it is. Pull it out, right? And that's, that's, what, that's what James and the psalmist is saying we need to do with God's word. We don't just glance at it and up, okay, on to the rest of the day. Did I get it? Do I see it? Do I understand it? Am I going to do something about it? That, that's, what, that's what the psalmist is saying. That's what James is saying. 
We don't just need to read the Bible. We don't just need to hear the Bible or hear the sermon. We need to have some time where we're going we're gonna to think and meditate on what we've read and what we've heard. How do we apply that to our lives to not just be a hearer, but a doer? And when we understand that that's what the psalm is talking about, then that, that phrase, day and night, makes sense. Because otherwise, day and night's kind of confusing, right? Think about it. When men like David or Joshua, they talk about meditating on God's word all day and all night, you might say, oh, they're exaggerating. They're exaggerating, right? They're using hyperbole. They're just meaning, I do that a lot. That's what we could be tempted to say, right? If they're saying, I read God's word day and night. Because they're, they're busy men, Right? They, 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 they have to lead the army into battle, and they're settling legal disputes for Israel, and they're giving leadership to the nation. They are not reading the Bible 24 hours a day. So they're just exaggerating, right? Because they're busy. I mean, you guys get busy. You guys get busy? I get busy. I think a lot of people here get busy. Some of you guys are saying, day and night! Day and night! I, you know how hard it is to find 20 minutes in the morning sometimes? We got kids screaming. We're potty training right now. That's a whole nother morning experience. You know, uh, you got to get to work. You got a house to clean. You got school to study for. You've got shopping to do. Have you seen how fast the grass is growing this spring? I mean, there are things to do. It's busy. But Psalm 1 isn't talking about that all you do is read the Bible all day. They are doing this day and night, but not reading. They're meditating day and night. It's not talking about a 24-hour personal devotion time. It's talking about that when they have those 20 minutes, when you've got your 20 minutes or your 30 minutes or your 40 minutes or your 10 minutes if it's one of those days, whatever you have time for, that you're absorbing Scripture in the way where you're not just reading what's there. You're, you're reading, but you're taking time to start to think deeply about what you read so that you can think upon that the rest of the day. So that when you are mowing the grass, you can be thinking about what's there, what you read in the Word. That you, when you are taking the kids to school, you can think about what's in the Word. That, that throughout the day, that that is in your mind and in your heart of what you read during your devotional time. And that has huge implications for us, right? Of what do we do with our time with the Lord? See, our goal is not to up, read the Bible, got my three chapters, checked it off my list. That's not what the Bible's saying at all. Instead, the goal is to, to, to think deeply about what we read so that we can keep it in our minds the rest of the day. And here's what some of you who know me are going to be shocked. Sometimes you need to read less. <gasps> Did he say it? He said it. But here's the thing. Sometimes we need to read less. If you've got 20 minutes and all you do is just try to pound out 20 minutes of reading and you haven't thought at all about what you read, you read too much. Because... I, What's it going to do the rest of the day if you're not going to think about what you read? So here's an evaluation you can use. After you finish your devotional time and you close your Bible, can you remember anything you read? If you can't remember a thing, how are you going to meditate on it the rest of the day? Ask this question. Six hours in after your devotional time, if you do it morning or lunch break or evening, whatever it is, six hours later, eight hours later, how much do you remember of what you read? If you don't remember anything, you're doing too much reading and not enough meditating. So maybe if you've got 20 minutes, you spend 15 minutes and you read and you spend five minutes and you're going to stop, you're going to go back, you're going to pick part of that scripture and you're going to think, what does this mean? What is God saying here? How do I apply this to my life? How do I be a doer of the word? And so that you remember that and you live that out through the rest of your day. Sometimes the psalmist would say, we need to read less so we can meditate more. 
Here's another problem we have with this. The other problem is that sometimes we fill our lives, we fill all those empty spaces in our lives with so many things that there's no time to meditate. We fill the empty spaces in our lives with TV and music and podcasts and others. And if you know me, I love listening to podcasts. I love listening to sermons. I love throwing theological lectures onto my, 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 my phone. And, and whether I'm driving to, to work or whether I'm mowing the lawn or I'm doing busy work, I love to be filling my mind with, with good teaching, right? Now, is there anything wrong with listening to Albert Moeller or John MacArthur or John Piper? No, there's nothing wrong with those. But if that fills up all the empty space in your day where you have no empty space to think upon God and his word, where you're letting other people do all the thinking for you, that's a problem, right? The, the psalmist is saying there are times where you need to listen to less sermons, right? There's some great resources we have. I remember being a younger Christian, and a friend of mine used to have to order tapes from Grace to You. Some of you are here remember that. You have to order tapes, and they have to mail you tapes of John MacArthur's sermons. And now they're all free online. Praise God, Right? but sometimes you need to stop listening to John MacArthur or John Piper, whoever it is, so that you can actually spend some time with the Lord and think deeply on his word. Not just grafting in from what they have, but actually taking, what did, you, what did you listen to and what does that mean and how do you apply it to your lives? And that's something for me as well. It's been a great conviction as I've been studying this psalm in preparation to preach this week. See, ultimately, the psalmist is asking you to look at your life and say, which of these two paths describe your life? Where is your delight? Where are you walking and standing and sitting? Do you walk and stand and sit because your delight is in the sinful ways of this world? You're filling your days with the thoughts and the attitudes and the worldview of this fallen world. Or is your delight in who God is and his revelation of himself? So you fill your days with the thought of God and his truth. Where is your delight? The psalmist says that these two paths also have two different pictures that would describe these two types of people. Look at verse 3, these two portraits. Verse 3 says, He, this blessed man, is like a tree planted by water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. This blessed man is like a tree. Not some random tree that you find out somewhere, and some years it gets some water, and some years it doesn't. No, no, no. This tree is intentionally planted by the water. This tree is provided for, and every image of this tree shows it's full of life. You can overanalyze all this imagery, but the idea is it's full of life. It's well-nourished. It grows as it should. It bears fruit when it's time. There's not a single withered leaf on it. Everything about this tree says it's alive. That's what the psalmist means when it, is, when it means to prosper. Prospering is not an idea of Biblically, it's not about reward or wealth or health or, 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 or personal success. That's not biblical prosperity. I mean, just think, how many of those things describe Jesus? And Jesus was prosper in every biblical sense. Instead of what it means to be prosperous is to be full of life, like this tree, to have genuine spiritual life from our relationship with God. We've experienced a relationship with God. We've experienced the presence of God in our lives. We're right with God. That's the blessed man. I mean, just think about this image of the tree for a second. See, when we hear tree, we think about the tree that's in our yard, 
right? Or the tree that's at the park or the tree that we have experience with, right? The tree that you're like, yeah, I think about that tree. I've been mowing it around like five times this spring already, right? But when the psalmist thinks about a tree, they're not meditating on the yard. What does the psalmist say he's meditating on? He meditates on what? The word. Now, let me ask you a question. If the psalmist, and we see this throughout the psalm, the psalms primarily draw their images from the Bible. So we don't have to start with my experience first. We start with what does the Bible use of these images? Where do we see this image of a fruitful tree in Scripture? Well, think about it. The whole Bible starts in Genesis 2 with this description of God planting a garden in Eden. And in the middle of the garden was a tree of life. And flowing through and out of the garden was a giant river, so big it split into four other rivers. This tree, planted by streams of water, is an image taken straight out of the Garden of Eden. So this person who meditates on God's word is like this tree planted in the Garden of Eden. Do you ever wonder what Eden was like? Do you ever wonder what it would be like to hang out in paradise? To, to be able to hang out there in paradise with Adam and Eve. We'd have to figure out the clothes thing. But, but just to be able to hang out there. Let me ask you this. How much would someone pay for a vacation to the Garden of Eden? I mean, forget Hawaii. Forget the Caribbean. They're great, but they're still sinful people in sinful circumstances. What if you could spend a month in the Garden of Eden? How much would someone pay for that? And the psalm is saying... Do you want to experience what Eden was like? Do you, do you want to experience what paradise is? Meditate on God's word. Meditate on God's word day and night. That's how you're going to experience what Eden, what made Eden Eden. Because Eden was foremost about the presence of God. And if you're meditating on the word, you're experiencing that presence of God. You want to experience paradise? Experience God through his word. You know, it's interesting, if you fast forward in the Bible, we started at the beginning, and if you go to the end, and if you listen to John's picture in Revelation of heaven, listen to this, and how he picks up on images from Genesis 2, and images from Psalm 1, and John writes this, Then an angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month in season. The, the, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. That's a picture of the new heavens and new earth. And John knows Genesis 2. John knows Psalm 1, and he describes this tree. When he sees it, he describes it in terms of those pictures. So John would suggest to us, by his imagery, he says, do you long for heaven? Do, do, do you want to go to heaven? Do you want to experience what heaven is like? Be like this tree. Meditate on God's word day and night, and you get to experience a taste of what will be fulfilled in heaven. In fact, if you don't want to be close to God through his word, if you don't want to know God through his word, you're not going to like heaven. You, don't want, you won't want to be there. John Piper is right when he wrote that if you could have all the benefits of heaven and God weren't there, that's not heaven. Not heaven, not, not the biblical heaven. Because what makes heaven heaven is Jesus Christ. 
Now contrast that picture of the blessed man with this picture in verse 4, this other picture. Look at verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. John, uh, the, the psalmist is using another picture here. It's a picture that was common in Israel, that there's a, and it was common throughout the, 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 the prophets as well in the, in the Bible. It's a picture of a threshing floor at the grain harvest. In Israel, they would build these threshing floors on top of the hill so that it would catch a good breeze because they'd bring the grain in and, and the husk or the chaff of the grain would be attached to the kernel of it. So they have to bring it into the threshing floor and they'd use these giant threshing instruments to, to roll over the grain to separate the, the chaff, the husk, from, the, from the, the, the fruit of the grain. And then they would pitch it all up high in the air and the chaff, the husk, would fly away in the breeze and the grain would land on the floor and be collected as the harvest. And the psalmist is saying the wicked are like that chaff that's blown away. It looks good. It looks strong. But in the end, after the threshing, it's, it's temporary. It's empty. It just gets blown away. See, the world would say, it's a waste of your time to spend your day and night meditating on God's word. It's a waste of your time spending your day thinking about how do I know God more and how do I follow God more? The world would say, if you do that, you're not going to have any fun. You're not going to accomplish anything, anything important. You're not going to have the success that you want to have. If you really want to enjoy yourself, if you really want to make something of your life, you need to get rid of these other ideas of God. You need to live for yourself. Popular media would say you need to let it go. Not let hold, anything hold you back anymore. You need to slam the door. You need to take these old traditions like spending your day focusing on God and the Bible and you need to start living for yourself. That's what the world would say. And they would say, look, it looks good. Look how much people prosper from that. And the Bible says, it's a lie. It's a lie. It, it, it may look good for a little while. It may sound good for a little while, but it's empty. It's temporary. In the end, that's the kind of life that just blows away like the chaff. You know, when I first started in ministry here, I, I, I just was so excited. I loved things in the ministry. Of I, I loved getting to know the youth and the families. I, I loved being able to study and teach God's word. But there were parts of it I had no understanding of, of what it means to do ministry, not just even a pastor, as a part of the church, is that we walk along people who go through suffering in this suffering world. Right? That, that, and I'll tell you what, as I've walked alongside people over these years, and as you know as well, as you've walked alongside people, as you've experienced it yourself, when, when someone gets a call or finds out at work that they lost their job, or, or someone finds out that their spouse is leaving them, or someone found out that the cancer's back, you know what doesn't matter? How much they live for themselves. You know what doesn't matter? How much success they've achieved. It doesn't matter. It just blows away. At the time when they need it most, it, it gives nothing to rely on. But you know what does matter to them? What gives them peace and even joy is that they've spent time cultivating that relationship with God through his word. That in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their trial, it's a tree of life that gives them blessedness through that time. But it's not just the experience in this life that we experience a blessedness. It, it, it's also the, 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 the end result, the two prospects where these paths lead as well. Look at verses 5 and 6. 
Therefore, the psalmist says, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The, the psalmist says by saying, therefore, that because of these two different paths are different, they have two different destinations. In light of these two different ways, they're going to end in two different places. And the psalmist is looking down the corridor of time into the future and is telling us on behalf of God where these two paths will lead on the last day. In the end, there will be a day of judgment for all of us. Now, now some would think that this idea of judgment and final judgment, that's just, an, that's just an idea of religious superstition. But you know what? If we think about it, that the very idea of morality demands that there must be some sort of accounting. Even Immanuel Kant who was not a Christian, was not a friend of Christianity, was not a religious person in these ways. But he even said philosophically that, there, that, that if there's no such thing as, as some sort of, of future judgment for right and wrong, then there really is no difference between right and wrong. See, if racism and assault are wrong and love and justice and compassion are right, then it must matter. Something must matter if there is really a fundamental difference. And he says that there is no final judgment. If there is no accounting, then there is no difference. And though I disagree with him on, on every other part of religion, philosophically, he's absolutely correct. In the end, there will be a judgment. The Bible tells us there will be a judgment. And the psalmist, speaking for God, tells us that on that day, the path that you took will lead to one of two different places. The wicked who have spent their lives finding delight in this world, finding delight in themselves, finding delight in living for themselves, and although God created them, that they do not live for and worship that God, but they have lived in rebellion against that God and refusing to worship him. The psalmist says that on that day of judgment, they will not even be able to stand up. And on the other, but the other path says leads to the path of the congregation of the righteous where the psalmist says that, that, the, that the Lord knows or watches over or has a deep commitment to the way of the righteous, that on the last day, God knows who his people are and he is committed to them. And he will give them in full in that experience, the new heavens, the new earth, what we've experienced in part through our relationship through him and his word now. And so wait, you might say, wait a minute. So are you telling me that heaven and hell depends on how I read my Bible? That if I read my Bible and I meditate on my Bible day and night, I get to go to heaven. No, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what the psalmist is saying. Because here's the problem. None of us do it. I'm not saying none of us read our Bibles. None of us meditate on our Bibles. I'm saying none of us measure up to Psalm 1. Not a single one of us. None of us find our delight perfectly in the law of the Lord, right? None of us perfectly think upon God's word day and night, Right? None of us perfectly delight and worship God, the God of the word, rather than ourselves, right? None of us can live up to that picture of Psalm 1 because we've all fallen short. We've all sinned against God. But, however, Psalm 1 is not the end of the story, right? There is one person who did perfectly fulfill the description of this blessed man in Psalm 1. There is one person who did perfectly delight in God and his word. There is one person who perfectly lived in obedience to it. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the righteous man. When we read Psalm 1 and say, 
I'm going to be that righteous man. We're going to fall short. When we read Psalm 1 and say, Jesus was that righteous man, then we get what the whole, New Te- what the whole Bible through the New Testament is saying. He fulfilled that for us. And as we trust in him, he makes us part of his congregation of the righteous. It's his righteousness is accredited to us. In fact, if you're visiting with us this morning, and you don't have that type of relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to say welcome. We are so glad that you're here visiting with us this morning because we want you to know that God has offered this way of blessedness to you. He is offering you a right relationship with him, to to be reconciled to him, to, to, to experience a taste of heaven and the promise of heaven to come. But we don't get that, this, this blessedness if we read our Bible enough or if we're good enough or if we're religious enough. We all fall short. The good news is that God is offering you this gift as a gift of grace, as a free gift. You see that although God created us, we didn't worship God. We didn't honor God. We, we worshiped ourselves instead, and other things instead of God. That's what the Bible means by sin. We are in cosmic rebellion against God. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life for us because we could never live out Psalm 1 perfectly. And that he died on the cross for our sin, taking our punishment in our place as our substitute. And he rose again after three days to to vindicate that this is true and to offer this gift of forgiveness of our sin and reconciliation with God and blessedness and eternal life and a relationship with God now and forever is a free gift to you if you would repent of your sin and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. We would love to tell you more about this Jesus. We would love to tell you more about this gift of eternal life he offers you. If if you want to know more, please don't leave this morning without talking to the person who brought you. Talk to any member of our church. I'll be at the back, and I'd love to tell you more as well. We'd love to tell you more about this Jesus. And this is a message also, church, for us, My friends, Psalm 1 is not about, I'm going to be good enough to get this blessedness. No. Jesus was good enough to get this blessedness because we all fall short. Jesus was that blessed man who reconciled us to God through his death and resurrection so that we could be the congregation of the righteous. And in doing that, he's given us the new heart we need, the new delight that we would have. The, the, the delight that we would have in him because he is our Lord, because he is our Savior, so that we would delight to want to be like this man. We know we can never measure up. He measured up. But we want to live like this man because we delight in him, because we delight in Jesus, so that we would be people who would meditate on his word day and night, not to earn the blessing, but because through Jesus we have that blessing. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, and I, well, that's the question, isn't it? Which path do we take? Psalm 1 divides every person in the world as on one of these two paths, as being described by one of these two portraits, as having one of these two prospects. You're either with the wicked, who you seem to be living your best life for yourself now, but in the end, it's going to be like chaff that blows away or you're part of the congregation of the righteous because of your your trusting and cherishing in the Lord Jesus Christ. You cherish him, so you live out this life as the blessed man to delight in Jesus and his word. Which path are you on? Which path are you going to be on in the last day? 
that choice makes all the difference. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you are a God who has spoken, and you've revealed yourself, and you've preserved those words so that, that we have them in front of us today, and that you, through your spirit, work in your word through our lives. And so, Father, we pray that we would not be people who are just hearers of your word, but doers. We pray that we have people who cherish your word, delight in your word, because we delight in you. Father, we pray that, that we, would, we would do that because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.